Mark chapter 14, I will be reading verses 10 through 21. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Bible is filled with great comforts as well as grave warnings for the people of God. And these warnings are there to lead us to examine ourselves. Whenever we open the pages of Scripture, we should have a mixed reaction of both conviction as well as comfort from the Holy Spirit. Now, what should be our reaction to the passage that is in front of us today? We have come to one of the most solemn passages in all of Scripture. And it is interesting that Mark has placed two similar occasions back to back to show us the difference or the contrast between the two. He records two dinner parties that reveal True devotion on the one hand and corruption and betrayal on the other. In the first dinner party, we see the devotion and the love of Mary who poured out a year's wage worth of pure nard on Jesus as she anointed him. Now contrast this act of devotion with Judas Iscariot. Because wedged in between the two dinner parties is the account of Judas's plot to betray Jesus, which sets the scene for the Passover meal or what is known as the Last Supper. But first, we should answer the question, who is Judas Iscariot? We know he was chosen as one of the twelve disciples or apostles. And in every gospel account of his calling to be a disciple, he is introduced as the one who was to betray Jesus. This was to be his memory. Mary, on the other hand, is remembered whenever we worship. 
while Judas's memory is remembered whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We begin with the words of institution that says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. But throughout the Gospels, he is rarely mentioned among the group, except that in John's account, we are given a closer look at his character before he betrays Jesus. After Mary anointed Jesus, he tried to rebuke her. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he was stealing from the money bags. So just from this account, we get an understanding of Judas's inner character. First, he was a hypocrite. He was judging Mary, seeming to look righteous on the outside, while he was stealing from Jesus and the disciples. He was wagging his finger on his right hand while taking with his left hand behind their backs. He was a thief. He was covetous. He wanted what wasn't his. He was just trying to get something out of following Jesus. He made following Jesus into something that he could profit from. He was asking the question, I'll follow him, but what's in it for me? Now that is the sad reality of many who choose to follow Jesus today. They come to church and follow Jesus, but they are always wondering, when is my life going to turn around? When will I profit from following Jesus? What is there to gain from following Jesus? Folks, this is a danger for all of us. And if we come with the expectation that following Jesus is going to make us rich or successful or highly esteemed in the world, we're going to be sadly disappointed with the results. Also, secondly, he had a love for money. We have ample warnings throughout Scripture that warns us of the dangers of having a love for money. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Tell me the first thought that comes to your mind isn't Judas. He couldn't stand that Mary was wasting all that ointment that cost so much. If you were to witness this from the outside looking in, you would say he was just trying to teach them how to be responsible with their money. Now, there is a difference between someone who is actually responsible with their money and who are good stewards and someone who doesn't want to see money spent because they love money. There's a difference. He couldn't stand that it was wasted on Jesus. He wanted it for himself. Folks, this is why you cannot judge based on outward appearances. Someone may seem and look righteous because they are frugal or they live simply when in actuality it may not be from a place of righteousness at all. They may love money so much that they don't spend it. Folks, there's nothing wrong with money or having wealth or being rich. See, the problem with Judas was that he loved money and he loved himself. It was an issue of self-worship. He loved money more than Jesus. He loved money so much 
he would betray Jesus for money. He saw what was done with the ointment and he had enough. He said, I'm done. I'm going to get my share. I owe that to myself. So that same day after having dinner with Jesus at Simon the leper's house, he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. How much? In Matthew, he asks them, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. That is the cost of a slave who was gored by an ox, according to Exodus 21. It is about one month's wage, 10% of the cost of what Mary used to anoint Jesus. He sold his soul for enough to survive for one month. You could understand if he would receive millions of dollars worth, live a life of pleasure, and then face God's judgment. But no, 30 pieces of silver, one month's wage. Uh, I can't help but think of Joseph, who was a type of Christ, who was sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. I wonder how they split that up. Now, we should ask ourselves, what would it cost us to betray Jesus? One night of pleasure? It didn't cost much for Judas. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Imagine that. Imagine being in the position of Judas. He was a chosen disciple. He walked with the Lord of creation. He heard all of Jesus' teaching. He heard the gospel. He witnessed most of Jesus' miracles. He witnessed the grace and mercy of a loving Savior who healed the sick and forgave their sins. Yet he still betrayed him and committed the greatest act of treason ever known to mankind against the King of Kings. This reminds me of what the author of Hebrews speaks of when he says, and I'm paraphrasing, it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have fallen away, who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And all it takes, beloved, is one sin, one lust to creep in and open the door to Satan, to be enslaved by him. When we open our lives to the little sins that no one else can see, we tend to presume on God's grace and say to ourselves, I can repent of that sin later. But that is not the way it works. It starts off small until it enslaves you and hardens you against God and against his word. You you see, later, Judas would not repent because he couldn't repent. He couldn't be restored. He was so enslaved to his sin. He became sorrowful, yes, but it wasn't a godly sorrow. 
It eventually drove him mad until he took his own life. He was so close to the kingdom of God. He heard the word of God coming directly from the source. Jesus must have had Judas in mind when he told the parable of the sower who sowed seeds among the thorns. This represents those who hear the word, but the deceitfulness of riches enters in and chokes the word. That's why we are told today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now we have come to the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now the Jews begin their days in the evening. Their clocks didn't begin at midnight, but at sunset. So at sunset on the Thursday evening of Passover week, Jesus had prearranged a place for them to eat the Passover meal. Uh, Why do I say it was prearranged? Well, we must understand that not all of Jesus' works were miraculous. He was also very human. So some of his work was ordinary, prearranged, and strategic, while at the same time he knew what was eventually going to happen. And it was prearranged because by this time the religious leaders wanted to arrest him by stealth. And Jesus had a bounty on his head as we read in John's Gospel. As the chief priests and the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus, it says, they had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So, though Judas had already made a deal, the order was already out to bring him in so anyone could have been seeking for him. So he had to find a way to eat the Passover meal in secret. And so he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now this might sound strange because there are about two million people at this time in the city of Jerusalem. And how many of them are going to be carrying jars of water to their homes to celebrate the Passover? How are they supposed to single this one man out? Well, in those days it was only women, slaves, and a group of ascetic monks called the Essenes who carried jars of water. Jewish men were not known to carry jars of water. So this man would have stood out among the crowd and they were told to follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Now, just a quick note. The identity of the master of this house is believed to be Mark himself, as he was known to be rich. And he may have had been the same man who was carrying the jar of water. Now, we're not exactly sure, but there is uh, debates among the scholars. And it says, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. In one of the most intimate scenes in the gospel, in one of the most intimate demonstrations of fellowship that is eating with one another 
he reveals that one of his closest friends, one who has been with him since the beginning of his ministry, would betray him. If you could picture it, what a sorrowful moment it would have been. Someone who has been among the disciples all this time, flying under the radar, none of the disciples would have suspected him. To them, he was a true follower of Jesus. Now, this should cause us to pause. Because just like in those days when there was one among the twelve who did not follow him, there could be false disciples even in the church today. Over the years, we have seen many who have fallen away from the faith. We have seen this happen among young people who have been misled by the world. We have seen popular celebrity Christians, celebrity pastors who have denounced the faith. There is always the possibility and the danger of some who are familiar with Jesus without ever knowing his saving grace. But this is why it is important that we examine ourselves. Self-examination is a Christian duty. Paul calls on the Corinthians to examine themselves and their relationships with one another before coming to the Lord's table. And to this day, this is why we continue to repeat those same warnings before we come to the Lord's table. But self-examination is not to be a source of despair. But again, this should lead us to Christ. It should lead us afresh to put our hope and trust in the only one who can grant us security. Paul says again, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? And here's the good news. That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Self-examination is not to lead us to despair. Because the Bible also comforts believers and gives us confidence that we are believers. I know there are some who have a tender conscience. And whenever they read a passage about self-examination, the conscience is so burdened, and one passage spills over into other passages, and they reject the comfort that comes from other parts of the Bible. But that is not the point of self-examination. The point is that we may be led to the throne of grace where we receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And if anyone sins and his conscience reveals it to them, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Listen to how the disciples respond, and it is a good response. It says, They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? That's a good response. That's a good response to such a dark and horrible revelation. We should be worried if our response would be, Oh, that's not me. My faith is strong. 
I would never betray Jesus. If your response to this passage is not, is it I? Then we are sounding much like the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. But folks, we are like other men. We are all like Judas. We all have the same sinful and depraved nature. And we all betray Jesus at some point or another, in some way or another. Now what is the difference between what Judas does and what uh, the disciples will do later on when they leave him alone to be arrested? Uh, For sure, fleeing out of fear is not as severe as taking the time to plot betrayal. Uh, to turn on Jesus for money. But nonetheless, their failure and lack of faith is clear. And, And the main difference between the rest of the disciples and Judas is that Judas never truly repents. He never goes back to Jesus. He never turns back to Christ. How many of us are asking ourselves, is it I? Because we could be attending church And be in close proximity to Jesus and never truly follow or believe in him. And never receive the gospel and rest on him alone for salvation. Listen to how close Judas was. As the disciples were probably worried, curious and anxious to know who it was that was going to betray him. He said to them, it is one of the twelve. And where was he? He was one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. In fact, in Matthew, he records that Judas would ask him, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. And even after that confrontation, he still betrayed Jesus. That's how hard-hearted he was. He was so close to Jesus, dipping bread in the same dish, as a friend. Now the dish was filled with a a sauce made of crushed fruits, spices, wine, or vinegar, and they were to dip the bread in with bitter herbs. This was to remind them of the bitterness of their captivity and enslavement in Egypt, and it was foretelling the bitterness of the event that was about to take place. This was to fulfill what David says in Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So there is a possibility that there are those who call themselves Christians, but who fake it till they make it. There is a possibility that there are people who say they are Christians, but they only say they are Christians because they want something out of it other than Jesus. Maybe a better life, maybe for a better society, a better world, and not Jesus Christ. Now that is becoming more and more difficult today because of the world's hostility to Christ and his church. But nonetheless, which one of us can say in full honesty that we do not struggle with this? Think of all your daily thoughts knowing that God knows all of your thoughts. Think of all the 
temptations in the world, how quickly we could just fall right in and follow our earthly desires and betray Him for worldly comforts. Finding comfort in sin. And think of all the ways you can easily trade Jesus for the good life. Folks, that is a temptation for all of us. We may be holding on to money, holding on to possessions more tightly than we should, and that could be the open door to a snare and a trap. Would we sell what we have? That is the pearl of great price found in Jesus for the sake of money or pleasure. That night, Jesus was trying to tell his disciples that all they ever need is found in him. He is our salvation. He is our rescue from the sinful and dark world. And he is the same Lord who provides us with every good thing in this world to enjoy and to sustain us. This Lord of salvation is the same Lord who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is what Judas missed that night. He didn't trust in his God. He didn't trust in his God for deliverance. He didn't trust in his God to give him all that he needs. He wasn't seeking to enjoy his God forever. So what or who is our ultimate enjoyment? What or who is our ultimate hope? What was the hope of the disciples that night? They asked, is it I, Lord? They were unsure of their own place. They knew it was possible that it could have been one of them because they were all sinners. They saw that. It was a very dark night and there were dark days ahead. Where was their hope to be found? They could go nowhere but to their Savior for assurance. They asked, is it I, Lord? And then they stayed with Jesus for now while Judas left to betray his master. But what about when Jesus would go to the cross? Where was their hope to be found? Their hope wouldn't appear until after he was betrayed and after he was put to death. Their hope was found when the light shined through the darkness and they see how he had beaten death, how he overcame Judas' betrayal to grant life to sinners and traitors such as you and I. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our security is only found in Jesus. Our security is only found in His finished work. And there are passages that reassure us. Like John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know you have eternal life. But also... We are not to ignore the warnings of the gospel because much of John's letters, he calls us to prove that we are Christians. If we love God and if we are in Him, we'd love other Christians and keep His commandments. We should examine to see if that is the case before our sin traps us and enslaves us. Because all we need is the opportunity to betray Jesus. And lastly, we must also be reminded 
that out of this one act of betrayal, what comes next in the coming days will be the greatest act of love and devotion for God's people ever demonstrated in the cross of Christ. He will go on to secure his disciples' place in his kingdom, to secure our place in his kingdom, so that we would never completely fall away the way Judas fell away. So we need to be reminded that God's love for us is greater than our greatest sins. And there is hope and forgiveness for traitors such as you and I. Because on some of our best days, we are no better than Judas. But the betrayal of Judas was not the unforgivable sin. Jesus will take the initiative to redeem his people, to redeem you and I. What Judas doesn't realize here is that this was all part of God's plan and that Jesus would give himself up freely. Jesus was in control of the entire situation, not Judas. So now you can rest. So now you can rest in the promises of redemption. When we do betray Jesus or when we squander our gifts or love our gifts more than the giver and the conviction settles in on us and we ask, is it I, Lord? Remember, there is always a place at the throne of grace. Come, no matter your betrayal, and find rest there. Amen.